Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Brendan with Evoke Bike. We've got an awesome podcast with Ian Boswell today where we didn't really go into some of the big topics that he's already talked about, you know, former pro tour life, unbound gravel, but more some training tips that he's using around his busy life to help him get faster that I think you can use also. Ian's now working full-time for Wahoo, and he's really getting his feet wet in what he describes as alternative surface racing, a.k.a. gravel. But he has some interesting ways of training and fitting in a big ride rather than a ton of big rides. We get into nutrition and an interesting joke about Chris Froome's post from 2016 and keto diets and racing but really digs into some winter indoor training tricks. Uh, A really good answer, I think, of how to go pro in 2022, you know, understanding how you younger riders can navigate that system. It's definitely a different world than the one Ian went through. Um, And we had really started talking on Instagram about some etiquette in gravel racing and how to win with dignity and respect. Um, while also though still being able to try to race against someone stronger than yourself when you might be, might not be able to go pull for pull with them. So I think there's a lot of good insights from a super experienced rider. Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. We greatly appreciate it. Hope you guys all enjoy the podcast and we'll talk to you soon. Good morning. Hey Ian, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. Thanks for making it early. Oh, no problem, man. I love early. When you said you had something else, I was like, let's do it even earlier, man. I'm up. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, perfect. And you're down in Boston, right? No, I'm actually in North Carolina. Okay, yeah. cool. Used to be, um, I used to be in Memphis and then just moved to Blowing Rock. It's just south of Boone. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's been great. Never lived in the mountains before. So awesome. going going from super flatland to 10,000 foot rides all the time. It's wow. Yeah. Uh, you're used to that up there though. Yeah. It's pretty much impossible to get less than pretty much every 10 miles. You get at least a thousand feet of climbing. Regardless, yeah. It's like the flattest possible road you can find. <laughs> That's awesome. And I guess is Ben the same way? Is there any flat? Can you ride around the mountains there? Like here, it's you're going up and over them all the time. I was in Bend once and uh, for that Oregon Trail gravel grinder. Yeah, and there was it wasn't. I mean, it was hilly on the on the race, but I remember doing a couple like pre rides with a guy, and they were kind of like long, slow grinds. So you didn't really feel like you were climbing a ton. I mean, here it's if I wanted to do like a time trial effort, it's going to be mostly uphill. I found a couple of valleys, but is Oregon similar to Vermont? No, not. I mean, it's kind of similar to you said. I mean, Bend actually, I just was back a couple of weeks ago. I forgot how flat it actually is. You know, it's east of the Cascades. So there's some climbs up into the mountains, but it's all pretty gradual. And, you know, especially east of town is pretty flat. Um, you know, I was in Portland for a couple of days and it's hillier up there, but Bend okay. itself is is surprisingly pretty flat roads. I mean, there's some hmm. longer climbs, you know, up to the mountains and, you know, it's probably similar to like Colorado, like Boulder or something like you can go up into the mountains, but we don't have as good a climbing as Boulder. And then the flats are pretty, you know, just a high plateau. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I like Boulder, but like the road surface is not that great. And at least from when I was out there, maybe it's changed, but I remember this is early, 
man, 2013, maybe people were like, oh, you're going to love Boulder. You're never going to want to come back. And I was like, I don't know, compared to like where I was riding, the road surface was kind of annoying and uh, never really didn't strike the biggest chord with me. I know people love it out there, but um, hey, do you, would you be down to do video? I usually post this on YouTube also. And if it doesn't, yeah, work- I mean, my, it might affect my Wi-Fi. I can, uh, but our Wi-Fi, we have like 1.5 megabytes download speed and we can try well, it, but it might affect the audio. It's all good. We can keep it just audio. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that. It's the, no. one of the major issues of living where we do is the internet is pretty piss poor. Uh, I was just on a farm. So do you satellite Wi-Fi? No, we don't have, I mean, it's too, we're hoping to get Starlink, but it hasn't come yet. Okay. Yeah. I had to use Viasat and I was doing like 20 megabytes a second. So I guess that's primo compared to if you're doing two. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we've looked at Viasat, but I guess there's like a monthly cap on it, um, which we'd probably... I mean, you could do it up to a certain point, but you know, I'm doing enough. I mean, I, if I have to like go upload podcasts and stuff, I have to drive into town to, to do it. Cause I, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's virtually impossible. For oh place. dude, I've, I was doing, uh, so you can't see it, but I have like this uh, zoom background because I was in my car doing these in the post office parking lot. Cause that's where I could get a, a cell signal and Lauren's 10 down was on. He's like, Oh dude, I didn't realize this was like super pro. And I was like, I'm yeah. in a parking lot. It's not. Trust yeah, me. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy what technology can do these days. Yeah. Well, man, thanks for doing this. This is awesome. Um, you know, we really, the whole point of this podcast was just to, we put out a lot of content just about training. It's me and a couple buddies. There's uh, five of us now that are just amateur cyclists doing some gravel, doing road. One guy's big into cross and, you know, we've all raced a ton, but we're, we're just amateurs too. And that's kind yeah. of where we draw the line. We're pretty vocal and like, Hey, we're just sharing our experience, but we would love to hear from other riders that have made the jump to the next level and then the next level. And then a guy like you, who's been at the highest level of road, you're winning huge gravel races, just to hear a little bit, like pull the curtain back. What's Ian doing uh, for training? Kind of what do you think about races? And um, if we have time, we'll chat a little bit about like nutrition and equipment stuff. And if there's a tangent that you want to share on whatever, we love that. Um, Okay. Does that sound like a good sort of format for you? Yeah, sounds great. Awesome. So if for people that are listening that don't know, Ian has an awesome podcast, uh, Breakfast with Boz. And so the first question obviously has to be, what's for breakfast this morning? Oh, well, I haven't had breakfast yet. Um, oh, no way. Not yet. No, our chickens started laying eggs again. There was a wildest summer where they stopped laying. So probably something involving eggs, probably, I don't know, some type of omelet. And my wife just made up some, some cornmeal bread. So probably uh, an omelet with eggs this morning to keep it pretty simple. But yeah, I do love, I do love eating. And I mean, it's full on summertime here now. So our garden, my wife loves gardening. So we have huge gardens. So probably some spinach or kale from the garden, some eggs, and then some, some bread. Um, yeah. I mean, nothing, nothing too fancy this morning. My wife's actually heading off for a hike. So I'll, mm. uh, yeah, we, we tend to cook a, a nice breakfast when we're together and since she's out and I'm, you know, doing some stuff this morning, I'll, I'll wait and get some breakfast here at some point. That's awesome. Do you guys make the bread or are you buying it from somewhere in Vermont? No, my wife's making it. Um, yeah, we, I mean, it's, it's cool, especially this time of year when, you know, the garden is just pumping, um, we, I mean, we probably do, I'd say this time of year, probably over 50% of our food is all 
homemade or homegrown. That's you know, even from the jam and stuff is all, you know, berries we've picked and foraged for. So yeah, a lot of, uh, we spend a lot of time cooking and, you know, saving, you know, canning food, jamming food, um, freezing food. So yeah, we, you know, try to maximize this short window of summer that we have here in Vermont to, you know, really stretch it out for the whole year and what we, what we can grow or forage for. Uh, I don't know if envy is the right word, but I, I wish I had a huge garden right now. I'm like, damn, I'm missing out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it depends really on how much time you have because we were out in Oregon for a week and thankfully it just rained pretty much nonstop while we were away. So we didn't have to water anything, but coming home, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of weeding, mowing and, and weed whacking to be done just because everything exploded, which is, which is great, but it's uh, yeah, a lot to keep up with. Yeah. Especially I had chickens once and um, it was an interesting experience. It was a little bit more work than I expected. And that's like not much work. So yeah, I'm not, yeah, I mean, definitely just become part of our, our daily routine, I guess, Um, you know, feed them in the morning. Then we let them free range in the afternoon. We have enough acreage and, you know, they just, it's amazing though, to see the change of the the color of the yolks based off the winter when they're in the barn and just mm. eating scratch compared to summertime when they're out eating bugs and whatnot, the, the yolks change colors tremendously in the summertime when they're just eating, you know, foraging for bugs and little plants and whatnot. So is it darker orange in the summer or lighter? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In the summertime, it's like, they're very like almost like a, I don't know. It just, they look very rich. And in the wintertime, you know, they start to get a bit more pale, probably more mm. like a store-bought, a store-bought mm-hmm. egg, but it's uh, yeah. I mean, when you make an omelet this time of year, they're incredibly yellow and vibrant. That's awesome. What's, so you mentioned routine. What's uh, that'll be, let, that's a good like foray into your overall routine. What's kind of your, I mean, so you're on a farm and you're growing a ton of uh, your own food. How does, life and training and racing sort of all fit in as we're in the middle of summer here, uh, July 22nd. Yeah. Well, I mean, recently it's been kind of, uh, chaotic. I mean, really since unbound, Mm -hmm. uh, it's been, you know, it's been a lot of travel, especially coming off of last year when I was at home nonstop and, you know, really kind of got to fully delve into lifestyle here and, and being in one place, but I'm definitely a morning person. Um, usually wake up around, I don't know, five in the morning and, you know, basic morning chores, you know, first make a cup of coffee, you know, look after the chickens. we got a puppy and then, um, yeah, usually try to hammer out a, a bit of work because, you know, I'm working full-time at, at Wahoo. So I'm trying to get, I try to get work done early in the morning, you know, kind of catch up on, you know, stuff that happened in the afternoon or overnight, just because we have an international, you know, presence. So people are working pretty much around the clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, which hopefully allows me to, to make a little bit of time for riding during the day. Um, I don't really have a strict, you know, when I was racing professionally on the road, like if I, I like always left on the bike before 10 o'clock, you know, usually it was like eight or nine o'clock. I was out riding um, just to beat the heat. And then you could get back early enough and, you know, take a nap and, and recover. Now that's not always the case. Um, you know, sometimes I'm leaving for rides at, at 4 PM or, you know, at 6am, you know, really just depends on kind of my work schedule, how I can fit it in. Um, and yeah, that's probably been one of the the biggest challenges just as far as kind of balancing, you know, life and, and work and training is, you know, I am very much a creature of, of habit and I do love a routine and, you know, like, cool, I'm going to leave every day at nine o'clock. And that's been hard to like, okay, well, I'm not gonna be able to ride today until 5pm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, five o'clock rolls around. I'm like, oh, I'm kind of tired and could just cook dinner and, you know, chill out. So that's probably been the biggest challenge of, you know, 
leaving the world tour and leaving this kind of lifestyle where your sole focus is, is racing and training. Um, but still, yeah, making, making do. And as I said, the last couple of months have been crazy really since unbound, you know, I was over and came back for a couple of days and I went to Kenya back to Vermont for a couple of days and I was in Oregon and then down to BWR and San Diego, and then just got back here, um, early Tuesday morning. So it's been, yeah, it's been a bit of a, a crazy month plus, but I'm here for three weeks before kind of the final few travels of the year, which is out to SBT and down, down your way to uh, BWR Asheville. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Those, those will be good time. Have you ever done gravel worlds? I have not. No. I mean, BWR was only my third ever gravel race here in the U S so I'm still pretty <laughs> new to this as far as like events that I've gone to. And, you know, I'm learning quickly how each event is, is so different and unique. You know, I've done, you know, some like gravel group rides here in Vermont, especially last year. Um, but yeah, rule of three was my first gravel race here stateside in end of May. And that was, you know, a very unique race. It was, you know, a mix of, of road and single track and gravel. And then, going to unbound, which is completely different to, to rule of three. And then I just did BWR this past weekend, which yeah, was, uh, again, a completely different event. So I've, I've heard great things about gravel worlds and I think it, you know, just the location is, is probably fairly similar to something like unbound, just as far as, you know, kind of bigger, open, fast gravel roads, which, uh, is definitely my preference of, of surfaces to be riding on. Super fast. We did, 150 in seven and a half hours and wow. it was yeah it was ripping um there are some and, and it's never really there's no real downhills it's the, probably the less least technical course that i've ever come across and that's the one thing about gravel that's interesting that people talk about like there's no gravel grading system like you go to something yeah. like mid-south gravel and it's like oh this is muddy this isn't gravel this is like clay and then out in Oregon, they had a ton of sand. And I was like, this is interesting gravel. They're like, oh yeah, it's not really gravel, it's sand here. And I was like, huh, okay. I, I definitely don't have the tires for this. That's my bad. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, I mean, that's been, it's been a, yeah, I mean, because the roads up here in Vermont are like, I would say probably the most pristine gravel roads I've ever ridden. You know, you could ride a 25 mil road tire on most of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of, kind of, you know, speaking of the, the kit that I have with, with specialized, the surface studies. And, you know, it is funny how all these events got the name like gravel races and very few of them were actually gravel. Um, you know, here in Vermont, we have dirt roads and, you know, I would say that unbound is, you know, that those are gravel roads, but, you know, growing up in Oregon, you know, gravel roads are like gravel roads. It's like three quarter inch gravel that they just dump on the road. And it's, it's a mess to ride on any bike mm-hmm. um you know probably mountain bikes the best the best bike for it so yeah i mean i think gravel the the term has kind of stuck but um yeah i don't know i feel like maybe alt surface you know alternative surfaces Dude, would be yeah. a better a yeah. better name for for these events i agree 100 percent. that's and that's i've i got into gravel just my teammates we were doing it and uh, I was on a team that was sponsored by Allied. So they obviously have some big gravel bikes and like, dude, you should do this. And it's been fun. I really think I'm kind of going back more towards road and long road stuff. Like I don't even know about Lodija. It's a 200 mile uh, road event out West. And just, I'm not really a big muddy off-road guy. I suck off-road handling and I'm just like, eh. Um, but it's actually really good to hear you talk about Vermont because my friend, I was going to go up and do GMSR uh, one more time. And he actually, we're going to do a 
he's convincing me that I need to bring a gravel bike so we can just do like a five day big ride, go over to Lake Champlain. And he's trying to sell me on the dirt roads. And he's like, no man, it's not like bad roads. It's just like, it's more like hard packed and just, you can rip on them. But if you have a gravel bike, it'll be even better. I'm like, well, okay, maybe. So if you're kind of selling me on that idea now, it sounds sort of fun to be off the beaten path a little bit. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, you kind of have to in the state of Vermont, to be honest, I think 70% of all roads in the state are unpaved. So the, the paved roads tend to be, you know, highways or, you know, especially, I guess if you're over towards Champlain, there's more, more main paved roads, but up where I am in the Northeast kingdom, you know, it's like, if I do a road loop, it's, you know, not great roads and they're oftentimes rougher than the dirt roads. So if you, if you have, that's yeah. I mean, if you crazy. stay, if you stay off the class four roads, I mean, you can get away with, uh, you know, if you could fit a, a 32 mil tire on your road bike, you know, you can go pretty much anywhere and you don't need hardly any traction. Um, yeah. The roads are, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm very spoiled to live where I do and have the, you know, just the amount of roads and the quality of surface. It's uh, it's pretty mind boggling. I've lived here for I think four or five years now and I'm still finding new roads in my neighborhood or, you know, not say neighborhood, but in my area all the time. It's uh yeah, it's just such a such a maze and a network of of roads and you know trails. That's awesome. So let's let's talk about that. So when you're up there, you're training, you're doing these big uh, alt surface events, we'll call them. What's super open ended question? What do you see as like one of the most important aspects of your training now that you're not just racing? So you have a job, family over there. You're you know doing the farm thing. What's how does training fit into all this? What's the important piece to it? Um, a couple of things. I mean, I would say one of the, the biggest things is consistency. And, you know, I, I don't have the time to train, you know, I mean, I've done a few 20 hour weeks this year, but I don't have the consistency or the time to, you know, do these back to back weeks. Um, you know, so I think for me, it's the biggest thing, you know, cause we have such a harsh winter and such a long winter here as well, you know, just staying at a level of fitness throughout the winter that kind of allows me to, you know, whether I go on a trip somewhere and do a little training block or, you know, once the weather turns here, just like staying at a level of fitness that when I need to kind of ramp things, things up, I can, um, you know, so thankfully I do, I do work at Wahoo. So I have a kicker bike in my basement and do a lot of, a lot of Sufferfest stuff, um, you know, relatively short stuff inside. I don't train a ton when I'm inside. I don't do a huge volume. It's like, you know, oftentimes I'll do a 45 minute workout in the morning and a 45 minute workout in the evening. And that kind of gets me through winter, you know, mixing in some fat bike rides here and there and some backcountry skiing and skate skiing and ice skating and whatnot. Um, but really just kind of like staying at a level of fitness where you're healthy and you, you could ramp it up and go do a, a four hour ride when, when need be. Um, and, you know, kind of the funny things, you know, I just mentioned consistency, but I think the, the biggest difference now, and I kind of took this lesson off of Colin Strickland is, you know, very seldom am I doing stage races now, you know, when that was kind of my specialty on the road was, you know, back to back hard days, you know, whether it's, you know, a week long stage race or something like a grand tour, where you really need this depth of, of fitness and kind of accumulated fatigue to handle something like a grand tour. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, you know, I really try and maximize the days that I do have, you know, the time and availability and the weather's right to go do a big hard ride, you know, really try to f- make those rides worth it. And when you look at a lot of these gravel events, you know, most of them are a single day, you know, there's a huge workload required. So, you know, rather than doing like a four hour ride, a five hour ride, a five hour ride, it's like, you know, maybe I'll do a two hour ride, an hour and a half ride. And then I have time to do a, a five, six hour ride. And so really maximizing my effort on those days. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I used to train a lot off of 
off of power and that, you know, obviously I still have a, a power meter and focus on, you know, power and I, you know, we'll look at it afterwards, but I've, I've changed the data screens around on my, my head unit um, to, you know, really just reflect what I think is now important and what is most important in, in gravel, which is speed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so on my, on my Wahoo Bolt, I just have like literally the lap time, you know, so how long I've been riding, I have the distance, I have average speed for the lap and I have current speed. Hmm. Um, and so literally, I mean, I, and I, I noticed this even at BWR, it seems like kind of the golden speed of almost any gravel event that I've done up to this point, like the winning time or, you know, the winning speed is like around 20 miles an hour. Mm. Um, so I literally would just set off in my house. I'll pick a loop and I'm just gonna say, okay, I'm just going to try to do this loop and average 20 miles an hour. And these are kind of those bigger, longer rides. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be, you know, 80 to hundred miles, just trying to average 20 miles an hour. And it's actually a surprise. It's taught me a lot, which is, you know, it's funny to think that I raced in the world tour for, you know, seven years and had (laughs) access to some of the best coaches and we were doing, I wouldn't say it was super specific training, but, you know, very structured training, very organized, you know, very, you know, kind of thought out, um, which, which does, you know, work for, for road racing, kind of the demands of the road racing. But when you look at these gravel events, it's really just attrition and, and speed. And I think the biggest thing that it's taught me is how to ride fast and steady over a long period of time. You know, if you're going out and doing, you know, intervals, so let's say you just, you know, most people I would say go out and, you know, they get to a hill, they ride hard and then they ease off over the top and then they coast downhill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now it's like, okay, like if I'm going to, of, you know, learn and anyone who, you know, tries this kind of technique or training strategy will figure it out. Like, you know, you can, you know, and, and you notice it in races too, if you ride hard up the climb, like, and you push over the top and then like really don't back off until you pick up speed, um, you go a lot faster. And, you know, I'm not looking at my, my power meter necessarily while, while doing this, but, you know, every once in a while I'll flip through the pages and see like, Oh, here's my, my average power. Um, but really just focusing on speed, you know, and having, having my head unit set with that, you know, average speed display right in front of me, you know, I can just see like, all right, like, you know, and kind of knowing the terrain, especially around here, like, you know, where can I gain speed? Where am I going to, I know I'm going to lose speed. Um, just trying to keep that, that speed at, at 20 miles an hour, which is great training, you know, and I think it's very applicable to a lot of these events when it's just, you know, how long can you ride as, you know, steady, but as fast as, as you want or as you can. And it's, uh, you know, on days like that, I know we're going to speak about nutrition, but days like that, it's also important to practice your, your fueling strategy for these long events. And I think that's something that, you know, people are switched on to, but probably one of the things people could probably improve on is, you know, using those big days to actually like go about it. Like it is a race, you know, practice a fueling strategy that you're going to use at, you know, gravel worlds or unbound. Um, Cause you know, it's, it's amazing how much your body burns riding at that, you know, kind of just like, you know, people call it sweet spot or tempo, you know, it's this, this zone that you could ride a lot harder for shorter or a lot easier for longer, but you're just at this incredibly efficient or I mean, inefficient rate of, of burning calories. Um, you're just burning a lot. So if you can also train your gut on those days to actually consume you know, what you're burning as much as, as much as possible, you know, and I think a lot of people, you know, especially coming from a, a road background where, you know, a lot of training is you are under fueled because you're, you know, trying to make weight for, you know, a grand tour, you know, be a better climber. Um, you know, there's days in, in training when it's like, all right, this is like, I'm going to treat this like a race day. I'm going to have a big, you know, a big breakfast, you know, 
rich in carbs. Then once I ride, like every 20 minutes, I'm going to be consuming or drinking, you know, some sort of, of carbohydrate just to make sure that, you know, you're really able to finish the, you know, I'm say the workout, but the ride, um, but also train your, your gut because, you know, you get to an event like, like unbound and you haven't practiced eating, you know, the, the fuels that you're going to use in the race, you know, it can be really hard on your gut and just training your body to, to process all of it. It's a lot of, it's a lot of food. I haven't done the exact math, but I think in unbound, I ate something like 6,000 calories plus, um, which is a lot to digest on the bike. And I think some people really struggle with that, but if you can get it down, you know, it's, it's all the better. Yeah, that's crazy. What's so training the gut. Let, let's talk about that actually. So you mentioned rich in carbs, Let's talk about a pre big ride or race breakfast uh, in terms of what you're eating and how much earlier before the race are you eating it? Cause some of these races are starting at crazy early times, six o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning. Are you getting up very early to eat before? No. And I've never really had too many stomach problems in my, in my life. Um, well, I've had a lot of stomach issues with Giardia, but not as far as like, you know, regurgitating food in the race. Okay. Um, and I guess that's also something that's so different with gravel than, than road is, you know, oftentimes these, you know, pro road races, you know, they may start extremely hard. You may start on a climb. It may be an hour before the break goes and you're just like at threshold the whole time, in which case, you know, eating, you know, two to three hours before is important. Just so you're not, you know, your body actually has digested some of the food and it's not going to come up. Um, but something like unbound, you know, I think we started at 6am and I probably had breakfast at four forty-five, five o'clock in the morning, you know, so an hour before the race, um, just because it's like, that's an extra hour of sleep. And, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not panicked to, you know, try to get my food down because I know the race isn't going to start in a full on sprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and the closer you can have that food to, especially in, you know, these longer events, you know, the longer you can have that food digesting in your stomach, the more, the more energy you're going to have. Um, but yeah, my breakfast pre-race, you know, usually, I mean, this is even true racing is, is usually some type of, of oats or overnight oats. And I'm, um, yeah, I just got hooked up this year with, with picky bars a company out of Bend that they make an amazing, yeah, the trail mix oats and it's, uh, yeah, it's got oats and nuts and chia seeds. And most of these events I've just been making it the night before, just because mm-hmm. then I don't have to think about it in the morning, you know, I'll put some hot water in in a big bowl of oats, let it soak overnight, leave it on the counter and just, yeah, wolf it down in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, if I have it with me, you know, I'll throw in some, some nut butter or, or whatnot, but that's not something I always travel with. Um, just to add a little bit more, more fat to it. But that seems to be my kind of go-to. And I, I think I've, I do it at home. I don't have any issues with it, you know, coming up. I think, you know, I would, it'd probably be different if I had, you know, sauce. I feel like if I would have stomach problems, it would be if I had like sausage and you know bacon and chorizo, that stuff seems to, you know, not taste good on the other end. Um, but yeah, I mean, just a relatively clean breakfast, you know, people can, I know people eat rice and, you know, pasta or whatever. Um, but I mean, really it's just finding, and that's one thing with nutrition is it's really just so unique to you and what works for, for you and your body. And everyone is different. Um, so I think it's just a matter of really kind of pinpointing what, what works for you. Cause you know, for me, oats and, you know, some peanut butter work great, but for other people that might not be the optimal fuel. And I think that's one thing that, you know, especially in this current, you know, era of, of data and, you know, being able to read what everyone else is eating and articles, um, people get sucked into like, Oh, well, this is what Froomey's doing, or this is what Garrett Thomas is doing, or 
but that's not necessarily the best for, for everyone, you know, bodies are different and, you know, I don't understand all the science behind it, but um, yeah, I mean, different people just run better off of different things. And that can be just from, from childhood diet or, you know, ethnic backgrounds, um, you know, the Italians, like before every stage they would eat, you know, a big plate of pasta. And I was like, I don't want to eat, I love pasta, but not for breakfast before <laughs> a mountain stage. Um, so it's really just kind of identifying what, what works best for you. hundred percent. That's huge. And I think that also goes to like what you've done previously in your life, the, tr- have you trained your gut? Like you're saying, so many small things. And I think to add to that too, the, you know, because we are able to tap into an article that someone posted or their Instagram post, that's one piece of their nutrition, not the whole picture. And, you know, I remember when actually you probably might've been on team sky when there was a ton of articles, Oh, team sky's all keto now. And Chris room doesn't eat carbs. And there were actually guys that I was racing against that were like, Oh, I'm keto. This is what Chris room does. I'm like, okay, good luck with that. And we go into a race and they're off the back when things go hard. I'm like, dude, that he might be using that as a strategy, but that's not his whole diet. Like, it's just, you, you gotta experiment with what, with what you're reading about because it might not work for you. And so it's good to hear you say that find what works for you, test it out. Um, so, that, and then I think too, then you're confident about what you're eating and you come to race day, like not worried about just the food you're thinking about the race and the performance there. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned Froomey because we were in, I think we were in Australia at the Herald Sun Tour one year and he, he posted a picture of like a hard boiled egg and half an avocado. Yes. He said like, all right, let's go race. And I was like, Froomey, you can't do this. Like, Dude, this is so bad. Well, that is it. I mean, cause that, that wasn't his breakfast. Like he had that, but then he had like some toast. He had a bowl of oatmeal. I'm like, some kid is going to see this and think this is what they need to, to win the Tour de France. Dude, um, not some kid, a lot of people. Yeah. I was, I had just moved to Tennessee maybe and people were talking about this and I'm like, dude, there's no way. Like dude, it's yeah. just not possible. And yeah. no, man, this is what he posts. And I'm like, okay, yeah. have fun Well, with I mean, yeah, Froome's a, Froome's a joker. Um, well, and it's funny, you know, at Sky, we did do, you know, and, and I'm sure they still do, but like, you know, a fair amount of, of low carbohydrate training, which, you know, is, you know, which still means like, Hey, you have a three egg omelet for breakfast and, you know, maybe you throw some ham and cheese in there. So it's, it's not calorie deficient, but it's mm-hmm. carbohydrate, you know, low in carbohydrates, but those training rides were very low intensity, you know, and after two and a half hours, then you start eating carbohydrates, you know, it's really just to kind of get this, you know, fat simulation or, you know, kind of this, you know, your fat burning system operating earlier in the ride. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a way to do it, but it's not calorie deficient and, you know, kind of like that, what's that game telephone. It was funny. I remember when I went to Sky and we started doing this and before I knew it, you know, just living in Nice and Monaco, other riders in, in the area were coming up to me like, Hey, I hear you guys are doing no breakfast rides. So our team's having us do like six hours, no breakfast, no food. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh. God. Like, you know, it's just, it, it gets distorted so easily. You know, we were doing a very specific, you know, kind of strategy. It's like, you know, you have a big omelet, you know, cheese and ham. So you're getting plenty of fats and calories and protein. And then after two and a half hours, you're eating normal again. You're having rice cakes and energy bars and whatever it may be. Um, but, you know, other people just hear this like little whisper and like, oh, we should do this. And, and, and for me, a joker. There was a, I don't think I've shared this with anyone. I'm sure it's been out there, but um, we were riding in, in Nice and Monaco with, with Sam Bennett a lot. And someone was just joking on a ride and was saying, oh yeah, Team Sky's on this like high onion diet. Like, yeah, raw onions have this really good, you know, really good like you know, minerals and stuff that like really help performance. So Froome was totally bought into it. it. was like joking. So he started bringing onions in his pocket on the ride. Um, 
and I swear that Sam Bennett must have like gone home and bought a bunch of onions and probably tried to take a bite out of a raw onion because Froomey was like, yeah, man, this is what we're doing now. Like you get back and you just eat two raw onions. It doesn't taste great, but it really helps your performance, um, <laughs> which is so ridiculous. But, so you know, it's just like it just it just kind of goes to show like how. Yeah, how people are so curious about what everyone else is doing. I just remember Froome, yeah, riding around with like an onion in his pocket, pretending like, you know, this was his his food for the ride. And I think, you know, we can't, you can't do everything. And that derails some people because then they're like, well, this person's doing this. And then they get on the next fad and the next fad. I'm like, you know, find a plan that's working for you of some of the optimizations. You're not going to be able to get all of the marginal gains. Like it's marginal for a reason. You can't, you know, and so... That's really funny to even hear pros talking about this and joking with each other and <laughs> throwing yeah. people off track. That's hilarious. Well, and it, it's something that I see as a big, I don't say a concern, but an issue with kind of, you know, a lot of athletes in this day and age, and especially athletes who are, you know, kind of up and coming or, you know, people who are you know new to the sport is we have this amazing ability to have so many metrics, you know, whether it's, you know, a power meter, a heart rate, yes. you know, strap, you have, you know, a sleep monitor, you have now, you know, glucose monitoring, and people are worried about all these little micro, you know, calculations and micro, you know, measurements, and they're forgetting about the, the macro, you know, they're forgetting about like, Hey, what about just going and riding your bike? You know, you yeah, spend, dude. you know, two hours a day calculating all these metrics <laughs> and you're like, Oh, I forgot to ride. And it's something that, you know, they do provide an incredible amount of, of information and insight, but you know, for 99.9% .9 of the population, like riding consistently and just living like a healthy balanced lifestyle is going to make you a lot better than, you know, doing something that's so, you know, such a fine tuning, you know, piece of equipment. And, you know, you can get to a point where yes, like having a glucose monitor is incredibly beneficial and it can teach you so much, but you can't let it like take away time from doing the basics, which is, you know, eating yeah. well, sleeping well, and, you know, training hard. Like it's still those three things. It's so simple and so basic and I think sometimes it's almost so, you know, trivial that people think they need to be doing more because there is all this, you know, access to other, you know, metrics and, and measurements that they forget that like, oh, I'm actually just not doing the basics things correctly. Uh, and it's just, yeah, it just, it, it puzzles me to, to sometimes see what people are doing to try to find, you know, a 1% edge and they're missing 95% of, of what goes into being successful. And that's the thing, the energy you put into that cherry on top from doing like a fasted ride and executing it the right way is go ride the bike, fuel your rides. Like unless you're training 20 hours a week, you've done everything and you're looking for that half percent gain. Like don't, don't spend so much energy on that small little thing. Um, that's, that's the outtake right there. If I did outtakes, that's like the keep it simple. It, this doesn't have to be so complicated. And I love power. I love data. I love WKO, but unless, I mean, it's what I look at all day because I'm, that's my job. And, and I love that other athletes want to get into that, but I'm like, you stop staring at charts, go ride your bike. And, yeah. you know, I always tell the eight hour athlete, I'm like, listen, if you went from eight hours a week to nine, that's a 12 and a half percent increase in training that is human. Can we find one more hour? Like stop screwing around with these charts and graphs, go ride. And they're like, yeah. huh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, jumping way back, you had mentioned Colin and you had mentioned the tip that you took from him was his tip, the top speed thing for doing the rise, just look at average speed or what was he telling you about? Yeah. I mean about, you know, riding off of speed, but you know, kind of 
also just off of like focusing on these specific days of big rides, you know, rather than going out and doing like, you know, again, like four hours, five hours, five hours, just like, Hey, every, you know, once a week or twice a week, go out and do this monster ride and just, you know, (laughs) smash it. Just like go do a a big hard ride. Totally. Um, Because ultimately that's what a lot of these events are. It's just the single effort, you know, and and I see, you know, I know Stetna well, and he's obviously incredibly fit. Um, you know, you look at his, his training, a lot of it is very similar or even more so than he was training on, on the road. Um, and people see that, you know, I mean, myself and, and Pete and Colin and, you know, Amity, like we all post our stuff to Strava so people can see what we're doing. We also have to understand that someone like Stetna is, you know, a phenomenally gifted athlete. You know, he, his body is able to handle, you know, 25 hour training weeks, week in, week out. Most people can't handle that you know, just with, with lifestyle and with recovery and, you know, other things that are happening in their life, but they also probably don't need that. Um, you know, it was explained to me a while back, you know, training is very much like a bell curve, you know? So let's say if you're at a hundred percent of like optimizing training, you're right in the middle, you know, most pros are actually on like the downward slope. They're overtrained. You know, they're at 95% on the downward slope. You could also be at 95% on the upward slope undertrained. you know, slightly less training, but, the the difference being that you know a lot of these world tour athletes are people that are you know being followed on strava and you know talked about on forums you know they are very you know you know the best of the best as far as like human physiology and their bodies can handle being overtrained a lot of people like that's a slippery slope like once you start going down you're you know you're getting ready to to crash and tumble so i think that's another like key point is you know if you think about a bell curve like you want to be in the middle at 100% but you can be just as high on the upward slope of, of mm-hmm. undertrained as you can on the downward slope of, of overtrained. And you might be at the same level. You might be at, you know, 90, 95% of optimized training, but you can be doing, you know, 15 hours a week, or you can be doing 25 hours a week and you're going to be at the same level of, of mm-hmm. kind of fitness and, you know, ability. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah. That is always a little bit less. I Manny, mean, that's a, as being a coach, a lot of times is telling people what not to do. I'm like, you know, it's, when we feel really good, that's when we want to pour it on and do more. And it's like, no, man, this is the time to like, just get off the gas a little bit. Like you're, you're flying. There's a point where that thing crashes and burns. So that's a real, I love that uh, visual of the bell curve. I've never heard that sort of said that way. And that's a really good way for people to kind of visualize their big picture of training. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, one, one more thing to that. Yeah. I mean, there's also this, um, this term that was coined a few years back, like Strava Noia, which is like, you know, people are paranoid of, of what they see on Strava. <laughs> and, and it is funny because, you know, you think about it and, you know, what you see on Strava, what your eyes are glued to, if you're scrolling through, you know, your, your feed of, of other riders, you know, what catches your eye is everyone's big ride, you know? So maybe like I see, you know, it's Monday and I see, oh, wow, Ted King did six hours. And the next day I see, oh, wow, like Pete Stetna did six hours. Oh, the next day Colin did six hours. I'm like, oh man, everyone's doing six hours you know, cause that's all you see is like you, you, you're drawn to these big rides. You're not looking at like the hour spin or the rest day. So you get in this mindset of people get in this mindset of like, Oh, everyone's doing six hours every day and not realizing <laughs> like, Oh, I didn't see, you know, Ted's ride because he didn't ride today. So it's just like, it, it blanks through your, through your mind. Um, and, and I think that's, it's a real issue that people, you know, do have the ability to see what everyone else is doing and they start to panic like, Oh, everyone's doing these huge rides. I better go do a bunch of huge rides but you're not taking in the whole picture of like, all right, well, they're also taking rest days. They're also doing easy rides, but just with our, I think how our minds have changed with kind of these, you know, flash images of, of what's happening, you know, scrolling through Twitter, 
you know, no one posts, I mean, people do, but like no one posts their, you know, crappy one and a half hour ride in the rain on Instagram. They post this, you know, epic six, seven hour ride through the mountains. And so you think, oh, I'm missing out on it, but it's, it's oftentimes not the case. Catching only the highlight reel, not the chill day. Exactly. Yeah. One, um, so when you're doing these and then we'll move on from training after this question, when you mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of aerobic activities, skating, skiing through the winter up there. Um, and then you had also mentioned some supper fest stuff. Are you going hard then? Or are you just getting on, are you like, if you did two of those 45 minute rides, would they both be like full blast or do you do it through like a periodized program or do you do it by feel or, cause I know someone's going to hear, Oh, he's doing two 45 minute rides that are suffer fast, but they might not hear, Oh, he's also skating, skiing, doing all this aerobic work. How's your big picture when you think of your off season of not racing? What is, what are your goals with that training? I mean, very, very, I mean, basically just trying to maintain a level of fitness that allows me to ramp things up when weather gets better, you know, so the off bike stuff, you know, whether it's skiing, backcountry skiing, ice skating, you know, do a little bit of running in the, in the autumn. Um, that is all mostly just it's mostly social exercise, you know, I'll go mm. scheme with some friends or I'll, you know, I'm with my wife. So it's, it's mainly just hours and, you know, kind of, yeah, just getting out and, you know, exercising mm-hmm. nothing specific when it's, you know, I'm not trying to run up the mountain and, you know, do as many laps as I can. Um, you know, really just trying to make sure that I'm, I'm staying fit, staying healthy, you know, exercising and, and not, you know, getting so out of shape that it takes, you know, weeks and months to kind of get back into shape. The workouts that are on Sufferfest, I mean, if you've ever done it, um, a lot of them are very hard. <laughs> I mean, given mm-hmm. given the name, yeah, um, they're very intense, but they also maximize, you know, the time that you do put into them. So, you know, a lot of them, you know, there's a couple of key workouts that I did. I think one's called the goat. Um, there's another one called like the blender. That's maybe like maybe 90 minutes. Um, and they're, they're very intense, you know, so it's, you know, a lot of like high intensity training, but it's, it's so short, you know, it's like I said, 45 minutes, you know, maybe 90 minutes a day. Um, but very specific training. And, you know, once in a while I'll sign up, they have different, you know, plans you can, you know, sign up for and I'll, you know, do a 10 day week long plan. And, you know, maybe it's, there's four or five workouts a week. Um, but other times, you know, I'll just go on and select a workout that I know, I know I, I know I enjoy. And, you know, there's days when I still jump on and I'm like, Oh, I'm not feeling great. I'll back off the intensity to, you know, sometimes even 75% because I'm just not feeling great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you do have to be cautious when you are riding indoors because it can be so intense mm-hmm. that it's easy to, it can be easy to overdo it, you know, especially on, on modern day smart trainers, you know, it, there's no backing off, you know, the trainer's going to keep putting resistance on until you hit that watt that the, you know, that the app says, um, so it's, you know, it's in a way it's easy mentally to get through it because you just keep pushing, but you know, you also, it's important, I think for, for everyone to just check in with yourself and like, Hey, how am I actually feeling today? And, you know, I think, you know, there's days to back it off and there's days to, to ramp it up. You know, there's days when I back it up to 75%, there's days when I push it up to 110% cause I'm feeling, feeling good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, yourself being a coach and I think a lot of coaches out there, you know, I've just, you know, kind of always gone off the theory of like, Hey, on days that you feel good and you have the time, like, again, make those the big days. You know, there's days when you feel crummy and you, you get through the workout and you have to push, you know, you have to improve and get better, but there's days when you just feel horrible, you know, you don't feel well, something's going on in your, with your family, your household, or you're stressed with work. Um, 
and, you know, at the end of the day, stress is stress and, you know, piling on as much stress as possible is not always the best thing. So there are days to, you know, maximize and, and really push through and maybe you're not even expecting it. And there's days when it's like, Hey, you know what? Like, for example, yesterday I went out and I was going to do a three hour ride and I did an hour. I was just like, you know what? I'm just tired. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. not feeling it today. And, you know, whether it's from residual fatigue from BWR or, you know, it was just kind of rainy and dreary. And I was like, you know, I'm just not feeling it today. Um, there are so many factors I think that we still don't understand about the human body and, and psyche. You know, even if it is something as simple as like, Oh, it's just cloudy and windy today and I'm just not feeling it. And, you know um, you know, working with Tim Carrison at, at team sky, you know, his, you know, we fill out like this metric every year, like, you know, how do you rate yourself off of, you know, one out of 10 based off of, you know, all these different kind of categories of like motivation and perseverance and, and whatnot, you know, he's like, you know, the person who's 10 out of 10 is the person who never makes it as a professional athlete because they're the one who goes out and does a ride on an icy day and crashes and breaks their collarbone or, you know, they don't have a piece of cake on their birthday because they're so worried about their weight. It's like, you know, you have to be in this balance of like being in like that eight, nine out of 10 in all these categories is like optimal. Mm. You know, the person who's 10 out of 10, like they're too extreme and Mm. they're not, you know, they're just so laser focused on, on the training and these metrics that they're, they're kind of missing the, the human element of it, which is so important. Oh man. And just with, like you said before, with all the metrics, the metrics show us only pedaling the bike, like exactly what you said, like something might be going on with your body. You might've just had an argument with your business partner or your partner in life got sick or whatever. And like, then someone looks like, well, my CTL says I'm supposed to be really fast today. And it's like, oh man, this is Nah, like you got to look big picture, look at the whole life as you as a human, not just this athlete. And it's, it's, yeah, it's awesome to hear you bring that to light of trying to take a step away from being too precise with it. Even after a guy like you has been at the highest level, um, being able to see that that's a huge tip for people to, to take home. Um, yeah, that's awesome. What's, Let's talk about, you know, one question that I've heard, you know, just amongst fellow Cat 1 guys or even people make it to the Conti level here in the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about when you went from Livestrong to Argo Shimano? Like, how did that unfold? Was it purely results? Was it networking? Was it you knew somebody that connected you with somebody and you got to go ride with these guys? And how does that work? Because I think there's a lot of missing links for athletes trying to get to the next level when they're coming out of the u.s when there's not a lot of u.s based pro teams um i sure as heck don't have that answer and so i always like to ask people like how did you navigate that yeah well i mean i would i would start by saying i think it is more difficult now than it was when i was you know 18 19 20 um you know when you look at i guess this is like late like 2009, 2010, 11, you know, it was kind of this, you know, even prior to that, it was like this very golden era of American race. You know, I, when I was 19 years old, I guess this was in 2010, you know, I signed with Bissell Pro Cycling and that was just one of many big kind of American domestic teams where guys, you know, they didn't race in Europe at all. They, you know, if you remember Ben Jock Mains, you know, he raced his oh, whole yeah. career in the U S he made a decent salary, you know, he raced maybe 30 days a year, you know, but there was, you know, Bissell, there was Kelly Benefits, there was Jelly Belly, there was Smart Stop, you know, there was Kenda, there was all these teams where, you know, riders could go from the junior, you know, junior ranks to, you know, now it's really Livestrong or, you know, Action is really the only, the only team that is out there. And I, I guess Avolo as well. Um, but there, I feel like there was a lot more 
opportunity back then than there is now, you know, the, the national team had more funding. So, you know, I was able to race with the national team and, you know, just kind of by, I don't say luck, but just by, you know, having those opportunities and then kind of having the right results at the right time. You know, I raced on a team out in Oregon, you know, I mean, like most riders in the U S I started off racing for a bike shop, you know, it's 50 bucks for a Jersey and maybe you get a 20% discount at, <laughs> at the bike shop. Um, you know, and just, you know, raced well locally and then kind of, you know, started going to nationals and performed well there. So I got picked up from the national team. And then from there, I got my last year as a junior, I raced for, for hot tubes, which is, you know, probably one of the more premier junior teams, mm. maybe internationally, um, you know, just has a long, a long legacy. So you do get more eyes just on what riders on that team are, are doing. Um, yeah. Then I raced for Bissell for a year because I mean, kind of a, funky situation where there was going to be a kind of a hot tubes U23 team and it didn't happen. So that's why I didn't go to Livestrong my first year. Cause I told Axel, I didn't want to race for their team. Cause I was going to be racing for um, this other development team. And that fell through. So I raced for, for Bissell pro cycling as my first kind of, I guess, pro contract for a hundred dollars a month. Um, I did get, they were sponsored by um, Kellogg. So I got a lot of cereal and I <laughs> lived off of cereal pretty much for a whole year. Cause I was the closest person that lived to the service course. I would drive over in my, little $600 geo prism and load up my, my car with, with Kellogg cereal. Um, but then through Bissell, you know, I had an, another good year and, you know, did a good performance at, at tour of Utah and then got to go to tour de Lavenier. And so I signed a two-year contract with, with Livestrong. Um, and my first year, to be honest, I was pretty awful on the bike. I didn't, didn't really race well, didn't have any, you know, major results and kind of just kind of got through it. But the, the second year on the team, you know, I, was kind of noticed by, by Argos and then team sky by some strong performances at, um, tour Utah, tour de Lavenier, uh, second place at the under 23 Liege Bastogne Liege. And that's kind of how I got connected with those bigger teams. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess at that time I did have an, an agent, um, who I was like, Oh, cool. Like, you know, someone approached me and was like, Hey, do you, you know, I'd love to be your agent. I was like, Oh, cool. That sounds like the big times I should probably have an agent in hindsight. And to be honest, I don't think it really, it didn't make a difference. You know, I, these teams came to me directly. Um, so I was able to, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's really, you know, there's no substitute for performance, you know, mm-hmm. especially in this day and age, you know, I know there's a lot of stuff, you know, you can have a good social media and you can have a YouTube channel and this and that, but at the end of the day, you know, if you're trying to make it to a professional level on the road, there's no substitute for having you know, good performances at big races and having, you know, consistent performances throughout the year. Um, you know, and, and I think there's been American riders recently who have, who have shown that, you know, you look at someone like, you know, Quinn Simmons, for example, he clearly performed incredibly well at, you know, some very key junior races and got picked up by, by Trek, um, where it does become more difficult now, which is, you know, in a way fairly sad. I mean, to me coming, you know, having these opportunities when you see, you know, a lot of these riders don't have that opportunity anymore. You know, there's not a tour of California, there's not a tour of Utah or Colorado where, you know, maybe a, a young rider on a, you know, a jelly belly or a Volo has a chance to really show themselves against, you know, a more international field. So it has become more difficult for, for young riders, you know, even riders in their, you know, early to mid twenties to find an opportunity to show themselves and especially the consistency. Mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, maybe a, a young rider, you know, there's a, f- a friend here in, um, in Vermont, Brandon Rim, who I think he won tour de Bose a couple of years ago and, you know, which is a huge result, you know, he beat the whole rally team and there was, you know, some international teams there. 
And, you know, he's still, you know, struggling to try to make it to the next level. He's racing on a, on a small Belgian team and he's getting some opportunities over there, but you know, every year that goes by, it's becoming harder and harder to kind of make it to a, a pro Conti team or a world tour team. Um, just because also these world tour teams are looking at riders who are younger and younger, you know, the amount of riders that you see who are, you know, first year out of junior getting pro contracts, you know, that didn't happen that, you know, when I was first turning pro, it's like, they wanted you to wait as long as possible to, you know, to kind of take that step up. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, I think American racers are at such a disadvantage because just like you said, mid twenties, a lot of people start racing maybe in college, a lot after college, or maybe they were a runner and they came over or a rower or whatnot. And it's really hard to close that gap and make the connections and get to the, what you said, races consistently. There's just not the races to go to, to stand on the podium next to a guy that you read about in Velo News and look up to. And it's unfortunate. I mean, what would you say to somebody that's maybe, you know, they're not in that, they haven't gone through the junior ranks and made those connections. Maybe they're, so you get out of college at 22, 23, 24. Do you think they even have a shot of becoming a, I guess that you kind of mentioned social media, like what is pro now? <laughs> uh, there's so many ways. I, a guy asked me this. I said, well, do you want to be a UCI road pro or do you want to make a living cycling? Two different avenues. Like, yeah. do, do people ask you that since you've been in the world tour? Like, Hey, what should I do now? Would you just say, get to the biggest races you can and get the best result? Or is there a more specific strategy? Yeah. Well, that's a very good point. And I think, you know, it's, I mean, you're right. Those are two very different avenues. And I had a talk with Fred Dreyer of Velo News out at BWR and he was asking me, you know, like, what is the next, what does it mean to be an American pro now? Um, you know, and I came from a background very much like a pro rider or someone who's racing, you know, in the you know, pro Conti or world tour level, or, you know, even here domestically. Um, but I think that's changed. You know, I brought up, you know, for example, someone like, you know, the vegan cyclist or Phil Guyman, like, are they pro? Like, well, I mean, Phil doesn't even race, but he's making a living off of riding a bike. So it's like, he's technically professional at doing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really hard to, you know, kind of like what is what is pro now it's it it is hard to define um but i think if you do want to become a professional road racer you know kind of that traditional you know you're on a pro road team you're being paid a contract to to race your road bike um you know the best avenue is you know you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices you know it's it's it is a harder kind of avenue to to make it now than it ever was i mean with the the lack of racing here in the u.s and the lack of teams you know you probably are going to have to go base yourself in Europe and, you know, get on a, on a smaller, you know, Belgian, French or British team and work your way through, you know, kind of just through the system, which can take a long time. And it may not, you know, it may not come to anything on the hindsight um, or like on the counter side of that. I think the coolest thing with American racing now is gravel. And the fact that, you know, people can, you know, they can go to college, they can be 22, they can get into cycling and, you know, they can work hard and train and then get to a point where they really just, you know, show up to a gravel event, you know, given they, you know, get an entry and you're on the start line with, you know, the best gravel racers in in North America, you have instantly an opportunity to show yourself and what you're capable of. I mean, you think about road racing, you know, it's a long, even if, you know, American racing was as it was when I was coming up, you know, you think you start off as a cat five, then you have to go to cat four, three, two, one pro. And, 
you know, it can take years to get to a cat one, you know, license. And then, you know, you're trying to get a pro license. So, you know, that can take many years. Rather, you look at gravel, it's like, you know, you can just be an incredibly strong rider and have never done any races. You could sign up for unbound and, you know, have all the, the skills and ability and literally within 10 hours, you know, change the course of your life, which I think is so cool to see that, mm. you know, these gravel events in a way have provided another avenue for athletes to make it to a pro level. You know, someone like me winning unbound, like, you know, Jonathan Vodders didn't ring me up and offer me a contract on EF <laughs> like he did calling because I've already, I've already done that. But, you know, if you're, if you're a young athlete and you, you know, win one of these events in a very impressive fashion, like those possibilities could still, could still happen, you know, to pursue a road career, but there's also kind of a growing, you know, market for being a professional gravel racer and, you know, kind of doing the, the privateer thing, like, you know, Ted or Pete or Colin, um, which is cool. You know, it's in a way, you know, I think American racing has been trying to find its, you know, how it, how it looks. And, you know, I think gravel and, and crit racing is a, you know, very uniquely American way of riding and racing a bike. And it would be awesome to see that kind of grow and, and not try to, you know, tour California was such a cool race and same with Utah and Colorado and, you know, but it's becoming harder for those events to just operate, whether it's budget or, you know, permitting licensing, um, you know, it is challenging for those events to happen. You know, and that was very much trying to copy a European model. So if we can, you know, really create something that's unique to, you know, our geography and our landscape, but still provides opportunities for people to make it to that next level. That's kind of the, the ultimate goal, I think. And one thing that I'm seeing more possible with, with kind of the growth of gravel racing. Mm. So, okay. So this is good. Let's actually, I forgot we got to jump into the question that actually started our conversation on Instagram. Um, and I know you got another call coming up so we can be brief with it, but we were taught, you had mentioned on a podcast, and I think this is good for people to hear that are trying to, be that rider that shows a bit of gravel race and you're racing most likely better people than you. And uh, you had made a comment just that, you know, you want to make sure that people are always pulling through and working. And I found myself in a position before in two different gravel races where I was in two different scenarios, but with stronger dudes, one time I had been up the road for about 70 miles and instantly these guys bridge up to me and are like barking at me to pull through. And I'm like, yo, dude, I got to catch my breath. Like you guys have been sitting in the group. And one guy who's a really well-known racer is like, I'm going to start attacking you. And I was like, okay, man, go for it. Like, I'm not going to be yelled at at a gravel race to pull through when you just bridged up to me. And another time, um, a guy was just much stronger and I couldn't pull through. And he's like, dude, pull through. And I'm like, I'm behind you doing 500 watts. I don't know who you think I am. <laughs> I just literally can't do it. And so you had made a comment. I, that's when I reached out to you like, hey, just an honest question. Like, what does someone do when they are not as strong? And if I'm with Ian Boswell, um, I'm going to try and work with you. If you're stronger, man, like I'm not going to let you just ride away. Like I'm there to try to win too. And I think it's your responsibility as a stronger guy to drop me. Like, and, and then we kind of went back and forth of just like, you know, isn't part of racing the tactical side where like, I need to appease the people in the brakes. So they're not mad at me for maybe sitting on every other pull or something, but that doesn't mean I'm letting you win. Like, so what's kind of, how do you see, what would you tell somebody in that situation? Like, how does the new 
guy on the come up, like if he's not strong enough and still there to win, like isn't it up to the stronger guys to drop him at some point? And if he can hang on, like so be it. Like you got to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a very hot topic in, in gravel, and I've spoken, you know, even just this last weekend at, at BWR, I spoke a lot about it with with Colin. And you know, at the moment, there's not really many gravel teams, and in, in most of these events, you know, a team is relatively useless. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and it, I think it will come where there are teams and, and tactics. And I guess it's you know everyone approaches gravel differently. You know, <laughs> not to say that I'm on the the downward slope of my career, but you know, I'm you know, I mean, I can kind of stay at the level I'm at for hopefully, you know, quite a bit longer, but I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to go back to the world tour or, you know, make it to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is this, you know, kind of core value of gravel where it's like, you know, and, and I do think this is true that I think how you win these races is much more important than if you win these races, you know, and I think that that is something that holds very true to kind of the ethos of gravel, like winning with honor rather than with, I don't want to say with like KG tactics, but like, you know, when Colin won unbound, it was like, what an impressive performance. And because mm-hmm. he won it in the way he did, I think that's why he got so much attention. And that's why JV reached out and was like, Hey, do you want to race in the world tour? Like this was just a incredible human performance. Had he, had he sat on and, you know, not pulled and then sprinted someone at the end and won. I don't think that he would have had the same amount of, you know, kind of respect or offers that he had because of how he won. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've spoken to Payson about this as well. You know, he said that, you know, especially now more so than ever, you know, how you win is much more important than if you win. And I think that also goes for, you know, partners of these athletes who are, you know, kind of competing at the front end, you know, they would love to see someone win in a very, you know, kind of passionate and, and, and honorable way. Um, and you know, this, the gravel racing scene is still so small. It's, you know, tends to be the same 10, 15 people at the front of every race. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is an athlete currently racing who was at unbound and at BWR who is starting to get a very bad reputation for not working. Mm. Um, and there's really nothing you can do, but I would say it's better to have friends than it is to have enemies. Totally. And I guess I've recently come up with my own, um, I don't say you know, way of writing, but like I, and I guess it doesn't apply to everyone because I do realize I have this depth of strength from, from years racing in the world tour, but like my mindset in, in these gravel races is like, I'm going to keep like, once there's been a selection, you know, obviously, you know, you don't need to be pulling in the first 10 miles of unbound when you have 200 miles left to go. Cause that's just, mm-hmm. you know, a big waste of energy if you're pulling through and pulling mm-hmm. everyone, but once there's been a selection and, you know, you're kind of in this select group of riders, you know, my mindset is like, I'm going to pull through until I either win or I get dropped, mm-hmm. and which is stupid if you're trying to win the race. But like, you know, I would, I would personally, I would much rather win with like pride of knowing like, Hey, I did every, like I contributed, I give everything I had mm-hmm. and you know, I either won or like, Hey, you know what? Like those guys, you know, the other athletes were stronger than me and they beat me and it was, it was a fair battle. And I think that's what kind of this whole, conversation stems from is, is people wanting it to be a very fair fight. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's what, you know, and and it's been easy in the sense that gravel is so small and it it is, you know, largely a handful of people competing against each other and they're all kind of at the top. And I, and I do see that's where the issue lies is that, you know, the people at the top want it to stay the way it is, but people who are kind of on the up, you know, upward trajectory, they, 
in order for them to potentially kind of like, you know, break into that next level, they need to be a little bit more caged and a little bit more, you know, thoughtful in, in how they race. And, you know, not everyone has a huge engine and someone, you know, maybe more technically savvy or more, you know, tactically, you know, have instinct that, that other people don't have. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I, I, I'm not the correct person to answer this because like I said, no. I've only have done a handful of races and my perspective is very much like I would rather win based off of, you know, strength and I don't say dignity, but, you know, honor amongst my fellow so, competitors than I would sit on and sprint. And, you know, especially because I am friends with a lot of these riders, you know, I don't want to go to the next race and, you know, have, you know, Ted or Colin or, you know, look at me like, Hey man, like what, what were you doing last week? Yeah. Um, you know, I'd much you know, rather like, have these guys be like, that was impressive. Yeah. We're on the same page then because definitely with dignity, definitely giving it your all my, we're, we're, I would never promote uh, just being that guy that sits on. That's annoying. The, the thing that happened to me was, and this is why it crushed me. And this is why I, one reason why I asked people um, it was Eric Marcotte who we've talked about this a few times um, afterwards, it was in gravel worlds and like my wheels were falling off and I'm like, all right, you know what? Eric starts uh, attacking John Borselman who won in 2019 is just like crushing these Hills. And I'm at the point where I'm like, dude, I am roasted. And, but if they attack, I'm going to like give, I'm like one of these I'm about to pop. And yeah. so I would latch back on, lash back on. I would get dropped, come back on. And then they'd ask me to pull through and I'm like, yo dude, are you seeing me on these climbs? Yeah. So fast forward to like five, six months later, we're at a grand Fondo in Dallas with Emmett Smith and Eric attacks and I follow him. And again, like just redlining, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to help you when we get away. But I just, dude, you just are, I'm trying to stay with you. And he goes, yo man, I know how you race. And it crushed me because Eric Marcotte is a dude that is like, I look up to him so much. He's, you know, a professional in business. He's one us pro, like just an absolute boss. And so I went up to him afterwards and I'm like, yo man, I think we're mistaken here. Like, do you realize how strong you are? I'm not trying to sit on your wheel and not pull through. I literally can't. Like, I don't know if you, you understand how strong you are sometimes. And he goes, well, you know what? He's like, I actually read your blog from gravel worlds. And I was like, you did. And he was, cause I do a lot of blogging and stuff. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, yeah, my buddy sent it to me. And you said in there that like me and Borselman were yelling at you. And I'm like, yeah, you guys were. He's like, let me tell you this. He's like, if people are yelling at you, it's probably because they just think that you can do it. And I was like, well, I appreciate that compliment. But at that moment, I couldn't. And so we both did uh, road, road amateur nationals this year. And he rolled up to me after the race. He's like, yo, dude, you ro- I didn't win, but had a pretty decent attack. At the end, I played my best cards. And he rolled up to me and gave me a compliment. I was like, hey, man, that means a lot coming from you, especially with our history. Like, you never want people to think you're this crappy, shysty, not working. And like you said, just sprinting people at the end with like a cheeky move. That's not cool. But I just felt like gravel was only getting this like Watts competition. And I still want there to be the sportsmanship racing. Like if there's a guy that's not as good as me, cause he's not as strong. I still think he deserves to have a chance to win, but yeah, don't just sit on my wheel and be kind of like a tool about it. But oh, that, that, I'm glad it's good to hear more of the full story of how you see that in racing. And uh, you said it well, win with honor, win with like dignity. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that. Cause it is something that people are, we all want, if we go to a gravel race, like that's part of the fun, man. Like I love being able to line up with a guy like Colin and uh, Ted and, 
you know, pace in if I have a race against you. And even though I'm not as strong, I'm going to try and hang on as long as I can. And um, maybe the stars align or something, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, and, and, and very much so this whole discipline of, of racing is still figuring itself out. And I think it's going to change a lot in the coming years. And I think, like I said, that, you know, there have, you know, in a way we're kind of like setting the groundwork of like, how do these races happen? How do they play out? Like, how do we approach a, an aid station? Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I think that's where, you know, again, kind of back to these marginal gains of, you know, people will start to figure out like, Oh, cool. I can, you know, somehow skip an aid station mm-hmm. because I have, you know, and that was one of the things that kind of bothered me at, <clears throat> at Belgium waffle ride was, you know, the front group had a lead moto who was handing them water, which is like, great. You don't have to stop for water. But like, if you're, you know, I came out of the first section behind and like we had no water and I didn't know that, you know, people had people on course, you know, handing up bottles at the aid station. I'm like, is that yeah. really fair? I mean, yeah, it, it is because like people can, you know, happens if you go to green mountain stage race, you know, you might have your you know partner out there or a teammate or a friend handing up bottles, but it's, it very quickly, I think deteriorates the sport because then it does make it an elite sport where, Hey, if you have money to hire someone or to bring out an extra guest, mm-hmm. to hand up water, like you're at a huge advantage. Cause that's, you know, 30 seconds at every aid station, you don't need to stop. And so that's where like, I would draw the line. And like, I don't think events should have outside support beyond the unbound. Okay. You have to have someone you know provide you water. Like that's a very clear rule in the event. You have to have someone there, mm-hmm. but you know, and not to say that, you know, cause that is a tactic for someone. Someone's like, Hey, I'm going to ride with, you know, two hydration packs. So I don't have to stop at the aid station. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you, you potentially may pay a penalty for that because it's, it's heavy, you know, but you think about something like, you know, unbound, like how much does it really slow you down to carry a hydration pack? Probably not very much. Uh, um, but you know, when people try to, I mean, I don't want to say exploit the system, but in a way kind of, you know, play it cagey and like, Oh, I brought, I have, you know, the resources to bring in, you know, three friends to stand at all the aid stations and hand me bottles. Is that fair to that young rider who's trying to come up through the ranks and, you know, literally just made it on a shoestring budget, made it to the event, got signed up and like, you know, he only has two bottles at his house. And so he needs to stop and fill up. He's not going to be throwing bottles and, you know, has a, a surplus of bottles. Like, and that's where I think that we as a, a, you know, kind of as racers and, and, you know, kind of people pioneering this, sport need to be careful of like how can you make it as fair as possible for everyone involved because the person who just you know showed up and you know barely made it there because it you know the cost is you know astronomical when you look at flights and registration and hotels you know okay all of a sudden they need to bring an extra person to have a rental car and hand them bottles like that's not i think we very quickly just return to road racing where it does become this you know elite kind of exclusive sport and there is you, know, you have to be on a team there is an elite group no doubt um it's i've heard other top riders say that they've at least noticed that it's becoming a little less grassroots but just like anything it gains popularity money's going to follow it there's going to be more sponsors more uh, i mean if you watch any of the unbound videos you see certain people rolling into pretty gucci filled out tents where they hop off and everything's just done um yeah yeah so well I think the the summation to all that is go out, get some good results, get some sponsors. Like you just got to keep building yourself up somehow. And uh, you said it's not going to be easy. Whether you're trying to be a pro gravel racer or a pro road rider, there's no easy road to that. So 
just for the person listening, got to be willing to put in the work one way or the other. And uh, as long as you're enjoying the journey and the process, it'll be worth it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's kind of a great way to you know, wrap this up is there's really no substitute for hard work. And, you know, because of the, the current, you know, data world we live in of Instagram and YouTube, you know, people see these riders at the top and you see this glamour, you know, you see, Oh, cool. He got a new bike or, he, you know, he's doing this cool trip, but like no one saw when I was 15, you know, 18 years old, like, you know, spending Christmas alone in Europe at a shitty hotel doing a training camp, you know, riding on Christmas morning by myself because I wanted it so bad. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very easy for, you know, a younger generation, just people who are new to it to like see what's happening at the front. And for these, you know, kind of, you know, key athletes um, to see like, Oh wow. Like they have it so easy, but it's like, regardless who it is, whether it's, you know, Amity or myself, like everyone has gone through a a hard, you know, a hardship and made huge sacrifices to get to the point to where they are. And I think that, you know, it's easy to sit behind a, a screen and, you know, kind of, complain about like, Oh, well, they had an opportunity that I didn't. And, you know, cycling does need to become more inclusive and does need to provide more opportunities to people. But at the same time, you know, at the end of the day, you know, hard work ultimately is the, that's the ticket to success. And there's really no substitute for that. Awesome, dude. Ian, thank you so much for doing this, man. Greatly appreciate it. And, uh, hopefully buy your coffee sometime in Vermont or at a gravel race. And, uh, Best of luck with the rest of the uh, summer racing and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. Take care. You too. Yeah.